Today we're going to begin looking at Psalm uh, 7. Uh, we've split Psalm 7 into two parts. Uh, we're going to address verses 1 to 10 this morning. And next week we'll look at verses 11 to 17. So uh, we might just read the whole Psalm too, I think.
So we're talking about biblical history. What impact does this historical incident that took place some 3,000 years ago in the life of David have on you as you read it? Do you see it as an interesting bit of history? It's informative as how David uh, related to God. It's great the way that he turns to God in time of trouble, how he pleads innocent to these false charges. Do you think he's a bit too bold in uh, his forthright way in telling God what to do? To lift himself up, to wake up? He tells God to pour out judgment on his enemies. Maybe on occasion you wish that the people in your life that tormented you and made you miserable were destroyed, but did you ever ask God to do it? So what's your takeaway from this psalm? If you go to Bible College, uh, one of the first things you'll learn is that the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament. And a form of preaching has risen over the last 40 years where people, preachers, search through the Old Testament for some hidden New Testament reference. And they work from there towards Jesus and the cross. Now John Piper says that that saying actually goes on and it says New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. And he thinks that rather working from some hidden reference in the Old Testament to get to the cross of Jesus, that we rather should start with Jesus and the cross and see the basis of how and this I think does make sense everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus the law, the sacrificial system the prophecies all look forward to his coming he was the long awaited Messiah the Christ he fulfills the law he becomes the ultimate sacrifice to which all other sacrifices point all the prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus coming and establishing God's kingdom by ushering in the age of the church. As we look at this psalm, we're going to try and get into the mind of David and see how his perception of life in these difficult circumstances that he's in has a basis in Jesus and the cross. Paul said to the Corinthians, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now he had the Old Testament scriptures and he had divine inspiration from God and the conclusion was to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the lens through which Paul viewed life, through which he saw all of history and through which he eagerly looked to the future. It's totally shaped his worldview. So we'll take a lesson from Paul and try and do the same. Verse 1. O Lord my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers who deliver me. David is talking about himself who takes refuge in God and those who pursue him to destroy him. And this reveals a basic fact uh, throughout the whole Bible that there are only two types of people. Those who take refuge in God and those who don't. Those who pursue, deride, ridicule, and seek to destroy it, those who seek to take refuge in God. Those who turn to God to be saved and delivered, and those like push who think they can look after themselves. Those who seek to please God, and those who seek to do whatever they please. In verses 8 and 9, we read of the righteous and the wicked. And we have here David who sings to the Lord and Cush who didn't consult the Lord at all. God's people love to sing the praises of God. And we do that because it excites our affections towards God. Worldly people find God as anything that are boring and their affections are stirred by the really truly good things of this life that we live here. What excites your affections. What do you love to sing about? Is it trivial worldly pursuits? Whatever it is, it will define you 
define what type of person you are. One or two people. David has great affection and confidence in God, and that is why he turns to God for refuge. Cush does not. He has taken matters in his own hands. Because David has confidence in God, he appeals to God to save him. The people who pursued David throughout his life were many, and he sought salvation and deliverance from war, and he always turned to God. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, points out that it might not be people who are our enemies that pursue us, that seek to destroy us. It's more likely to be lusts, addictions, sins that plague us. They are our real enemies that we need to be saved and delivered from. He says we should never think our prayers are complete until we, with great fervency and desperate sense of need, plead with God to be delivered from them. Just like David pleads in his psalm to be delivered from Cush and his enemies. And that's really the whole message of this sermon. If you can take that away, further the sermon. Plead with God to do whatever it takes to deliver you from the sins that dominate your life, the things that will destroy you. Do you plead with God to be delivered from the sins that pursue you? You can't escape them. They will destroy you. Or do you actually delight in your sins too much to ask God to take them from you? That's often the case. We have to come to a place of seeing that our sins will destroy us before we turn to ask God to take them from us. You don't pet and play with a lion like it's a little kid. But that is what you'll do when you play with sin. Sin will tear your soul apart. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Those who belong to Christ crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Our sins are crucified. Sorry, our sins crucified our Saviour. So we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires that cause us to sin. David is a man of faith in God and this is what faith looks like. Dependent upon God to save him and deliver him. As I said, we find that we ourselves can't defeat our lusts, our addictions, our sins. They continually defeat us. And it's only through faith in God and taking refuge in what Jesus has done for us by his death upon the cross, by which we receive forgiveness of sins, that a way is open for us to know victory over sin. What is that way? <clears throat> Do we believe that Jesus' death for us forgiveness of sins? something really done to embrace, isn't it? But do we believe that the power of sin in our life has been broken? 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Purify us. Deliver us. Set us free. Read through Romans chapter 6. Verse 18 says, Having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. But we cry out, don't we? We say, Oh, you be set free from sin. Paul says, You have been set free. We say, Oh, to be a slave to righteousness. Paul says, You are a slave to righteousness. We have become, we have become a slave to righteousness. Our master, we are a Christian, is no longer sin, it is righteousness. We are justified by faith. Faith is the finished work of Christ. That's what we justify by. Finished work of Christ. It's finished. The just shall live by faith. Likewise, we have to live by the finished work of Christ. It is finished. He did it. That's what we did by. We become a Christian loving the points that our sins are forgiven, but we still sin. Living by faith does not just mean believing that our sins are forgiven. It means that we have to put to death the deeds of the flesh by faith. 
Romans 8, 13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Living by the Spirit is through faith, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. How do we do that? You do that by letting the Holy Spirit that has come to live in you free you and free your heart from the reign of sin. You've got to let the Holy Spirit reign in your heart. If you're a believer and you're still under the dominion of sin, you are not living by faith because you have not let the Holy Spirit have free reign in your life. It's one thing to have a vague idea about these doctrines and we can intellectually assent to them, but do we know them in our heart? Do they motivate our life? Do we live by them? You're a new Christian? And you're really struggling with sin. You know what it's like. What was the very first thing that the early Christians did following the day of Pentecost? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what comes first. The apostles' doctrine came first. Devote yourself to the apostles' doctrine. It is the basis on which those other things exist. Without doctrine, you won't have genuine fellowship. The basis of fellowship is being united in belief. You have to know what you believe. Breaking of bread, communion, as I said, it's not just a ritual. You have to understand what the doctrine of the atonement really is. Genuine prayer is repeating the doctrines that we learn in the Bible back to God claiming those precious promises contained in them. Knowledge of doctrine is essential, especially the doctrine of justification. Verse 2 says, Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it in pieces with none to deliver. Lest like a lion is obviously drawing on David's life as a shepherd. David knew what a lion could do to the case of sheep. The lion just tears its prey apart. And this is where faith and fear meet in the believer's life. The destruction of your soul is the work of the devil, and he can cause us to become very fearful. We recently learnt in Ephesians 6 that we are to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, so that we can stand against the devil and his schemes. Putting on the armour of God is to clothe ourselves in Christ. Clothed in Christ we stand. Clothed in Christ we have refuge from the assaults of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Often in the Old Testament we read the Israelites were overwhelmed by foreign armies and they would cry out to God to deliver them and he would go and fight the battle on their behalf. With Gideon, he used his 300 men and he caused so much confusion with that meant that a foreign army of 120,000 went into total panic and destroyed themselves. Similar events took place in the Bible time after time. Once an enemy army was encamped against Israel, and in the middle of the night, sudden fear of God came upon that army. The Israelites got up next morning and the whole army had fled. They left all their baggage, all their equipment behind. They were so terrified. God fought that battle not. You are afraid that your enemies are going to overwhelm your view, your lustful desires, your addictions, your sins are going to destroy your soul. Cry out to God. Seek for Him to save and deliver you, just like Israel did in those times past on their enemies in the Old Testament. The battle is the Lord's. Jesus has conquered our enemies. Jesus won it on the cross. Your sins, your enemies, will be dealt with there. Why do you even think that you have to fight that fight? Jesus is already won. Apply the teaching of the Bible to your lives. Immerse yourselves in the Apostles' doctrine as the early church did, and you will have the victory that they did. Out of all of David's enemies, he felt defenseless against it was this push 
which is pretty amazing in a physical sense because David was a warrior beyond compare to many other warriors. I don't think he's actually physically afraid of the army that's pushing battle. Even if he pushed for Saul, it was some of Saul uh, that he slew his thousands, but it was some of David that he slew his tens of thousands. That is why Saul was jealous of David. David's reputation was greater than Saul's reputation. David wouldn't raise his hand against Saul because Saul would be anointed king by God. And twice David and his men had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he refused to take it. Once in a cave where David hid, Saul came in to take a toilet break. Once at night, uh, David and a companion snuck down into Saul's camp while Saul was sleeping. In the cave, they cut a piece of off his cloak. In the camp, they took Saul's spear and his water jug beside his head. David is not afraid to push physically, but is afraid to push his words. Words are often more powerful than physical violence. Push was slandering David, telling lies about him, trying to destroy his reputation. David likens it to destroying his soul, tearing it apart. You can recover from some wounds in a soul fight, but often you never recover from what else. Even a man who is innocent, who can prove his innocence, innocence cannot recover from it. His reputation is destroyed. Mark 6. Slavering somebody, as far as Jesus is concerned, in the Sermon on the Mount, is the equivalent of murdering. And that's what he will hold you to account for. The interesting thing about this man, Cush, he was a Benjamite. He was one of the tribes of Judah, one of the tribes of Israel along with Judah. He would have thought of himself as one of God's people. And this is the trap that many of us in the church can fall into. We're amongst God's people, we think we're one of God's people, we even believe that we're in the service of God, on mission for God. This is how Cush was behaving. If Cush is Saul, he certainly thought this. He was anointed to by God to be king in Israel, but it went to his head. He went beyond what God commissioned him to do. He offered sacrifices in the place of Samuel, the high priest. He took on a role that God did not anoint him to do. He started to think he didn't have to listen to God, that he could call the shots. He didn't kill the enemy in other place, king, as directed by God. He thought he'd be better. In the Old Testament, in the Psalms, there is a massive amount of killing and slaying of enemies. Ordered by God for the reason that they were defying the attack. Attacking God and attacking God's people. And the reason is, if you leave them alive, they will continually come back against you again and again. We need to learn from this example and say that our enemies, our sins, our lusts, our desires, we have to deal with them because they will bring us undone. We need to be just as ruthless in dealing with sin as they were with their physical enemies. If we are not, if we are toying with them, like Saul, Saul toyed with his, in some way it will come back against us. The Amalekites were idol worshippers. They were depraved people, forever attacking Israel and God's anger burn against them because of that. He wanted them to be destroyed. Men, women, children, possession, everything had to be destroyed. But Saul chose who lived and who died, and he kept many of the possessions that he wanted for himself. Saul was lifting himself up to be like God. The same sin that Adam and Eve got into and tempted. It's the greatest temptation that we fall into also. And it's caused when we give in to pride and arrogance that's in our hearts. When we are to Proverbs says a number of things. It says, I hate pride and arrogance. That's God speaking. I hate pride and arrogance. It also says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It also says, God will tear down the house of the proud. God took the kingdom to Saul and he gave it to David. 
These stories all have spiritual implications. God has fierce wrath against sin in our lives, and we pick and choose what we're going to build. Isn't it crazy? David made a way out and tried to do what Saul chose not to do, and that was to kill all the Amalekites. Some escaped, but he did try to do what God required. There are two types of people only those who make themselves like God, and those who obey God. Cush told lies about David, he tried to deceive the people about the character and integrity of David. You can tell a lot about the man by his actions. Satan is the father of lies, he is the great deceiver. Cush, in the midst of God's people, was an instrument in the hands of Satan. It comes about when you think more highly of yourself than you want. It's all about pride, jealousy, and pride. And we're all affected by this, if we're honest. When tempted, we start to think, why do people think more about that person than they do about me? Why do they think so well about him and not so well about me? I'm just as good. I'm better at anything. And we let that talk fester in our hearts. But then we think, I can show that I'm just as good. So you start with a little bit of innocent gossip. But gossip is never innocent. And it soon comes the same way. You just can't restrain yourself. It actually becomes a full out attack on that person trying to destroy you. And we think, oh, well, the ends justify the means if it advances in my course. Truth ceases to matter anymore. Put people down, saying you look impressive. And we're doing this among the brethren. In Acts 20, verse 29, Paul says, I know that after I leave, seven will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 15 and 16, the prophets will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly the ravenous wolves. You will recognise them by their fruit. If we are gossiping about saving the brethren, running them down, we are on shaking them. We are provoking God. David went down a similar path himself with this way of thinking when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, overcome by lust, he blindly and madly took advantage of his position as a king to seduce her. And then he tried to cover it up. Have Uriah, her husband, killed him back. In effect, he murdered him. When God convicted David through the prophet Nathan, David turned to God from repentance with great remorse. David realised the magnitude of his sin against God. Do we comprehend the magnitude of our sin against God? David wouldn't stand around while a lion attacked his sheep. As a shepherd, he went after that lion or that bear and he grabbed it by the beard. That's what they say, he grabbed it by the beard and he killed it. God won't stand by when one of his own tries out of distress. He won't let Satan destroy his own. He loves us. We are his children, fellow heirs of Christ. If you're a proud person and you're going around thinking you're going to take on Almighty God, we all know how that's going to Okay, let's look at verses 3 and 5. <coughs> Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have betrayed my friend with evil, or punished my enemy without loss, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. The false accusations brought against David was that he betrayed a friend with evil and he punished an enemy without loss. I think these are interesting verses because they explain a lot about our relationship with God. God actually allowed this stressful situation to develop in David's life. God was looking down, watching all this evolve. David rightly protests his innocence. He certainly did no evil to Saul. He restrained his men from doing evil also. If he says, if I'm not innocent, if I'm guilty, then I will cop all the evil that my enemies desire for me. David says, judgment. 
Sorry. David has a clear conscience. The fact that you're innocent won't stop false charges being brought against you. As false charges were brought against Jesus, you will be told they were brought against you and his followers. As a sheep before his shearers is done, so he opened his mouth. Jesus didn't try to defend himself against wicked men who falsely accused him as a means to crucify him, to destroy him. David proved twice to Saul that he was not harmed, sir. But proof of his innocence leaves nothing to wicked men. David says, Judge me according to my righteousness. David is claiming righteousness here. He is innocent of the charges. Judge him according to the integrity of his heart. Godly men are saved, and even men fight to destroy him. Why did God allow that situation? It was for the testing of David's faith. God allows hard circumstances to develop in our lives to test our faith. God uses the way we act to show us how strong our faith is, in whom our faith is. God already knows, but He wants us to know. And He does it through fire. People can have strong faith, but that faith is not in God. Most of the time, we have faith in ourselves. When tested, we're not to act like David for punishment. He turned to his own armour flesh. Even though he honoured God in the way that he treated Saul, he tried to sort it out for Saul. Showing him the cloth he cut from Saul's robe, showing him the spear and the water jug that he removed from Saul's head. Each time he could have killed Saul, but he restrains his hand and he restrains that of his men. Despite this truth being evident and shown before all the people, David was still. <coughs> it's only when God brings a distressing situation to an end that it actually comes. When a person does evil against us, we should be very careful. Going and trying to sort it out. Rather, we should turn immediately to God and get rid of Him. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will be paid. When we leave it with God, we know that He will get it right. When we take matters into our own hands, we will probably commit previous sin. Okay, skimming through six times. Verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. These are bold statements that David is making here, and they're, I think, increasingly involved. Arise, lift yourself up. Awake. You have appointed a judgment. And I think that they reflect the increasing anxiety that's going on in David's heart. Why else do you talk to God like that? The trials that God tests us in are tough. They're often described as a furnace of affliction. David is correct in God being angry about the wicked men attacking him. <coughs> but God is not He is not resting. In trials, we often feel what God is missing in action. But the New Testament has us take a different view of that. In 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For a little while it's necessary for us to be, to be tried. God decides that length of time. It is a refining process for the genuineness of our faith. Trials are designed to burn out all the loss or the impurities out of our lives. Trials don't come upon us as a punishment. We should never look at trials in that way. Through trial, God makes us willing for Him to deal with sin in our life. The 
genuineness of our faith should be more precious to us than God. More precious to us than anything except God himself. Gold does not purify itself. The refiner puts it in a furnace and heats it up and adjusts the temperature to deal with each impurity. When the refiner is finished, the gold is tested and it's assayed and it is awarded a grade of quality. Testing leads to the awarding of the quality certificate and people praise the quality of the final product. And that's what's been awarded to us as we're what quality is it? Is it 10 carat? 14 carat? 18 carat? 22 carat? God is working on your day. When Christ returns again, praise and honour will be given because our faith has proved to be genuine. You really do know you're making real progress in faith when you start rejoicing in your files. We have to start looking at what's going on in our lives differently, not from how it's affecting us physically, but how is it working for us spiritually. Not from the pain and the grief we experience, but for the praise and honour that comes as a result of the good work that God has done in us. Ephesians 2 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him for mission. Walk in them. God works in you first of all, so He can work in you. You want God to use you? You better get used to being in the furnace of affliction, experiencing the refining fire of God. Verse 7 Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you, over it return the fire. Verses 7, 8, and 9. David is looking forward to the time when God gathers all the people around him and when he sits exalted in his judgment seat and rightly combines the hearts of all men. God is actually doing this now. He pours out judgment on people every day. He sovereignly controls the events of history, he raises up drawers and kings and casts them back down. He decides when you have gone up and he will call you home to answer. The day is coming for the great and terrible day of the Lord when all men will receive reward or recompense for what they've done in the flesh. If our faith in Christ is genuine, we really can't imagine how great our reward will be. If our faith in Christ is false, we have or we have no faith, we really can't imagine how terrible. Verse 8 The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. The Lord judges people every day. He alters the circumstances of the life of man. David is calling upon God to look at the righteousness and integrity that is in his heart as a man. He's not looking at him. Saying, God, look at me and see that I am perfect. We know that David and every person like him of faith in the Old Testament and the New Testament is not. They all fail, often spectacularly. David, particularly. Only Jesus is perfectly righteous. What we know is that as a result of Jesus and him crucified, is that all who come to faith in him are covered by the righteousness. To live by faith in the righteousness of God. Those who are covered by Jesus' righteousness seek to live righteous lives. They do fail and they do fall, but the whole essence of their life is to live uprightly before God, to praise God, and to glorify God, to enjoy God. To live by faith in the righteousness of God. Verse 17, at the end of the psalm, shows us the righteousness of David. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord for his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. As far as David is concerned, his life is all about God and his righteousness. 
David is not singing his own praises. God, David is singing the praises of God. God looks into the heart of every man and he judges to see if that's the case. Verse 9. Oh, that the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts of men. This is what all of God's people are for. The wickedness, the filthiness, the gross injustices, the terrible deceitfulness of sin in this world, that it all come to an end. And all we begging against God will cease through the world. For this to happen, God searches the hearts, the minds, the secret thoughts of each individual. And he separates the sheep from the goats. He determines those who live by faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, and he separates them from those who live by faith in themselves, in their own prison, in their own works. False professors. The sheep goes when Jesus is right. People of faith, he says, Come, you have blessed my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. To those on his left, the goats, the false professors, the denies, he says, Keep heart from me, you person, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What are we? Are we a sheep or are we a goat? What is, it going, what is going to protect you from the wrath of God being cast into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels? Verse 10, David says, My shield is with God who saves our God's heart. David is looking to God to protect you. Who or what are you looking to, to protect you? Do you think you can protect yourself? Do you think you can protect yourself from the wrath of God? Do you think that you live a good enough life so that God will let you slip into heaven? This is the view of most religious people. They keep asking themselves, I wonder if I've done enough. Have I good enough living to heaven? <clears throat> they try and play God. And they set the height of the bar that they think they have to jump over. Some set that bar really low. They think, oh, I can enjoy most of my sin as long as I don't really commit the really bad ones. You know, the ones like rape and murder and child abuse. Some people don't even think that they sin. Read what God says in Romans 3 23. For all sin or short of the glory of God. Some people set the bar really high. And they live the best life that they can possibly live. They work long hours feeding the poor and the homeless. They work in drug clinics. They chain themselves to trees so the forests are destroyed, violence are extinct. They give their money to charities to look after this They provide care for orphan babies in the third world countries and they move and they have cataracts removed from people's eyes. Now these are all great causes and I think we should be all supportive. Some or many of them. But even if you do them all, and even more, it won't make you good enough to have I'm sorry you might think that you think that. Romans 3 10, there is none righteous, no not one. With God, nobody can jump high enough. You just can't jump high enough to God. You can't do enough, you can't earn enough merit, no not one. You can't purify yourself. Only God can make you holy. It's not about what you think, it's about what God thinks. We can renovate ourselves, but the fact is we're still an old building just part of God makes new creation. The old is gone, the new is coming. David says, My shield is with God. Salvation is all about God and what God has done. My shield is with God. Jesus is with God. You have to be in Jesus, and he has to be in you. It is Jesus' righteousness, imputed to you. It is put up on your account, that's what he means. You've got an account, and God looks at it. Are you in credit, or are you in debt? And he puts his righteousness to your credit. All your failures, your sins, your fallings, your rejections, your rebellions, that are on 
the debit side, which we cast you into hell, he says that being paid. Jesus took them all upon himself as he died on the He took his robe of righteousness and he put that in your naked soul. So that you are fully covered by his righteousness, totally protected from God's wrath. When God looks at you, he sees you in his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of it. That's not the end of the good news story. Not only did Jesus impute his righteousness over you, he imparted his righteousness to you. When Jesus, by God's Holy Spirit, come to live in your life, he imparted righteousness to you. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through him we may become partakers of the divine nature. The same, in my words, God has given us everything we need to live a life of godliness. Do you realise how great and precious that promise is? It is Jesus' own glory and excellence that has been granted to you. We have been given everything to live a godly life. The only thing that stops you from living a godly life is valuing on simple words, small embodiments. You can't make that switch from valuing simple words more than godliness. No, you can't. Men have done some crazy strange things time to. They wear a hair shirt. The hair shirt is a shirt that's really rough and it rubs your skin and it irritates you so much that you couldn't even think that skin. They go and as a hermit they sit on top of the mountain so that there's nobody else that can sing about it. They go like a monk or a nun and they live in the monastery and they take vows. Nothing that anybody does deals with the sin in their hearts. The of their body. So what is the answer? He imparted his righteousness into you. He made you partakers of the divine nature. He gave you the Holy Spirit. God in you. Such an amazing truth. God in you. God does what you can't do. God's nature that you partake of does it in you, for you. He's old. Like David, go to God and tell him, take away my love of sin. Tell God, you have tried and I've tried and I've tried, but I can't do it. Lord, you have to do it. You have promised you, that you would give me a life of godliness. Please that. Because you would make it so. You, I want you, Lord, to do this work in me. I want to be a product of your workmanship. James says in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you do not have because you do not ask. Have you asked? Is that the case? James goes on to say, you ask and receive not, because you ask only to spend it on your own passions. Why do you want sin removed from your life? Maybe that's the problem. Maybe you may be Maybe you want to be free from sin so you can glory in yourself. How wonderful I am. God knows that that's the true nature. And he won't answer that prayer. If it's so you can glory in the excellence of Jesus and God's great way of salvation, he will give it to you. Ask God to take away the desires that you have for yourself. Ask God to give him his desires in your heart. When he has changed the motivation from your past desires, he will give you what you ask for. Whatever you ask. God delights to be good use to his children. Freedom from the enemy, the secret to tear our soul apart. Freedom from the dominion of sin and rebellion against God. Can you say to David, my shield is with God? Can you say, my shield is Jesus' righteousness and purity? We've got imputed righteousness from Christ's righteousness clothing. We have imparted righteousness from the nature of God, not in the universe. We've also got self righteousness. 
alienated, fleeing from self-righteousness. Glory in the imputed righteousness of Christ upon you. Rejoice in the imparted righteousness that God has put in you because you have the Holy Spirit put in you. Flee from self-righteousness. God hates it. I can say with David, my shield is with God. I pray that you too say, my shield. Precious Lord, we come before you to commit ourselves to you. Lord, it's a passage that is very challenging and convicting when you look at how you do define the sinner. Find the Lord in the Lord, we know that uh, that's not pleasant. But we know that it is with your honour and glory and you are Lord. It's a sign that you are working in us. And we just rejoice that you are working in us. We say, Lord, persevere with us. And nervously to him. Bring us to that place and we will stand. For you in glory, for that judgment time. And we see people Lord, going up to the light into the kingdom of God. And we see all those people being led off to the into the damnation of God. Lord, they too will be judged by fire. It's an eternal fire under us. And we thank you for your, your fire, the refiner's fire, turns out the dross and the impurities of our life so that we don't have to pass that. And we rejoice in Jesus.